When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America Fundamental breach of contract is a controversial concept within the common law of contract. The doctrine was, in particular, nurtured by Lord Denning Mr., but it did not find favor with the House of Lords. Whereas breach of condition is a serious breach that denies the plaintiff the main benefit of the contract, fundamental breach was supposed to be even worse with the result that any exemption clause limiting the defendant's liability would automatically become void and ineffective. Also, whereas breach of condition gives the plaintiff the option to repudiate, fundamental breach automatically discharges the entire contract. Although the concept caused some excitement in the 1950s and 1960s, the concept was regarded as flawed by the law lords, whose decision in the Suisse Atlantique substantially curtailed the doctrine which has now been effectively laid to rest in England and Canada. The relevant concept in English law is repudiatory breach of contract. Background, the law of deviation. The origins of the idea of fundamental breach may be traced to early cases on the doctrine of deviation. In Davis v. Garrett Tyndall C.J. stated that a carrier's deviation from the agreed voyage route amounted also to a deviation from the terms of the contract, including its exceptions or limitation clauses provided by such a contract. This view was adopted in the leading cases of Glyn v. Margitson and Leduc v. Ward. In Leduc v. Ward, 1888, a vessel bound from Fiume to Dunkirk headed instead towards Glasgow, sinking in a storm in the Clyde estuary. The court held that even though the shipper may have known of the planned deviation, the parole evidence rule meant that the route described in the bill of lading was conclusive, and that the deviation was actionable, preventing the carrier from invoking the protection of the perils of the sea exemption. Similarly, in Glen v. Margitson, 1893, a vessel carrying Seville oranges from Malaga to Liverpool deviated from the agreed route, by heading first to Buriana, near Valencia. This deviation caused delay and deterioration of the perishable cargo. The carrier relied on a liberty clause in the bill of lading which purported to allow the vessel liberty to visit any port in any order. In the House of Lords, Lord Herschel L.C. declared the Liberty Clause to be an exemption clause in disguise, adding the main object of this bill of lading is the carriage of oranges from Malaga to Liverpool. He thus established the main purpose rule, holding that no exclusion clause would be allowed to cut into the main purpose of any contract. Tate and Lyle v. Haines Steamship Company was a further deviation case following this approach. Adoption of Fundamental Breach Within Contract Law Although the 19th century cases were maritime cases, the idea of the main purpose caught on in the general law of contract after Lord Green Mr., in Aldersley v. Hendon Laundry Limited 1945, labeled the fundamental term as the hard core of the contract. In car sales v. Wallace a buyer inspected a car dealer's used Buick car and agreed to buy it. The car was later delivered at night and had been towed. When the buyer inspected the car in the morning, it would not work and it was clear it had been involved in an accident and there were other changes, its tires had been replaced by old ones, body parts were missing, and the engine cylinder head was detached, revealing burnt valves. This was a serious breach, but the dealer sought to rely on a clause in the contract, no condition or warranty that the vehicle is roadworthy or as to its age, 
condition or fitness for any purposes given by the owner or implied herein. Although the clause was clear and well drafted, the Court of Appeal declared that a car was a vehicle capable of self-propulsion, and accordingly this Buick was not a proper car. Following Glenn V. Margotson and using its main purpose concept, the court held that the dealer was in breach of a fundamental obligation and so could not rely on any exclusion clause. This decision was clearly fair to the buyer, and car sales v. Wallace soon became the leading case on fundamental breach. As a matter of law, under the doctrine of fundamental breach of contract, exclusion clauses were deemed not to be available to a party in fundamental breach of the contract. However, all was not well, as business people felt alarmed that an agreed contract term could be set aside by a court there seemed to be no certainty. Also, there arose some confusion as to what fundamental breach actually was. Some alleged it was a breach that went to the root of the contract, a breach so fundamental it would permit the distressed party to repudiate the contract and claim damages. However, since both common law and statute already recognized that while that breach of warranty entitled a claimant only to damages, any breach of condition would entitle a claimant both repudiation and damages, it seemed that fundamental breach offered nothing new. Resolution, the Suisse Atlantique. The matter came to a head in 1966 in the House of Lords decision Suisse Atlantique. The case involved a two-year time charter to export coal, the ship owners to be paid freight dependent on the tonnage of cargo carried. If playtime were exceeded, the charterers were to pay a merge of $1,000 per day. The charterers caused huge delays and few round trips were made. Demerge totaled only $150,000 so the owners claimed damages for their full losses, saying they should not be limited to the demerge terms because the charterers' gross delays amounted to fundamental breach. The House of Lords boldly held that car sales v. Wallace had overstated the law, and that whether or not a fundamental breach extinguishes any protection that the defendant might rely on was a question of construction and not a question of law. Although the demerge clause was so absurdly low that it amounted to an exemption clause, nevertheless its existence plainly showed that the parties had contemplated the possibility of delay, so delays would not amount to fundamental breach. After the Suisse Atlantique decision, there was a series of cases where the Court of Appeal patently ignored the House of Lords' findings. One such case was Harbitz Plasticine Limited v. Wayne Tank and Pump Company Limited. The House of Lords was less than amused, and in the 1980 photo productions case, they emphatically reaffirmed their decision in the Suisse Atlantique. Lord Wilberforce effectively overturned the rule of law doctrine of car sales v. Wallace and instead maintained a strict rule of construction approach whereby a fundamental breach is determined by examining the full circumstances, such as the party's intentions at the time of the contract. These two cases, the Suisse Atlantique and Photo Productions, thus form the definitive statement of the law up to the Unfair Contract Terms Act 1977. More recently, this law was successfully applied in two cases related to carriage of goods by sea and application of limitation clauses under the Higvisby Rules, Dewa Heavy Industries Limited v. Clip River Shipping Limited and the Happy Ranger. Although the Suisse Atlantique case has taken the sting out of the fundamental breach idea, in deviation itself little has changed. Glenn v. Margotson still holds, so that not only may deviating carriers be denied the protection of exemption clauses expressly in the contract, they will also be denied the protection of implicit exemptions such as Article 4 of the Higvisby Rules. However, given the general move in the common law away from strict liability to a standard of reasonable care, or due diligence, this may change in due course. 1. Laytime is the allowable period for the charterer to arrange loading and unloading. 2. For example, not automatic, and. 3. 
as amended by the Consumer Rights Act 2015. Canada The doctrine of fundamental breach has been laid to rest by the Supreme Court of Canada in Turkin Contractors Limited v British Columbia, Transportation and Highways. In its place, the court has created a three-step test to evaluate the application of exclusion clauses. The first step is to evaluate the exclusion clause in the factual context of each case to determine if it applies to the material circumstances. The second step is to evaluate if the exclusion clause was unconscionable at the time of incorporation. The final step is to evaluate whether the exclusion clause should not be enforced on public policy grounds. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Legal Remedy A legal remedy also referred to as judicial relief or a judicial remedy, is the means with which a court of law, usually in the exercise of civil law jurisdiction, enforces a right, imposes a penalty, or makes another court order to impose its will in order to compensate for the harm of a wrongful act inflicted upon an individual. In common law jurisdictions and mixed civil common law jurisdictions, the law of remedies distinguishes between a legal remedy, for example, a specific amount of monetary damages, and an equitable remedy, for example, injunctive relief for specific performance. Another type of remedy available in these systems is declaratory relief, where a court determines the rights of the parties to action without awarding damages or ordering equitable relief. The type of legal remedies to be applied in specific cases depend on the nature of the wrongful act and its liability. In the legal system of the United States, there exists a traditional form of judicial remedies that serve to combat juror biases caused by news coverage. The First Amendment of the United States forbids the government from censoring and restraining the freedom of expression, which allows the ever-expanding news media to influence the legal process. The entangled relationship between mass media and the legal system presents challenges to the Sixth Amendment that guarantees the rights of criminal defendants to receive fair trials. Trial-level remedies are in place to avoid pre-trial publicity from affecting the fairness of a trial. To minimize the impacts of pre-trial publicity, there are six kinds of judicial remedies at the disposal of judges, voir dire, change of venue, change of veneerman, continuance, admonition, sequestration. In English and American jurisprudence, there is a legal maxim, albeit one sometimes honored in the breach, that for every right, there is a remedy, where there is no remedy there is no right. That is, lawmakers claim to provide appropriate remedies to protect rights. This legal maxim was first enunciated by William Blackstone, it is a settled and invariable principle in the laws of England, that every right when withheld must have a remedy, and every injury its proper redress. In addition to the United Kingdom and the United States, legal remedy is a concept widely practiced in the legal system of a variety of countries, though approached differently. Three Types of Legal Remedy in Common Law Systems There are three crucial categories of judicial remedies in common law systems. The legal remedy originates from the law courts of England and is seen in the form of a payment of money to the victim, commonly referred to as damages or replevin. Damages aim at making up the harm that a breaching party has committed to the victim. In the history of the English legal system, the legal remedy only existed in the form of monetary relief and therefore the victim must petition through a separate system if he or she wanted other forms of compensation. Although the courtrooms and proceedings have been integrated, the distinction between requests for money versus action is still present. Non-monetary compensation refers to the second category of judicial remedies, equitable remedies. This type of remedy comes from the equitable jurisdiction developed in the English Court of Chancery and Court of Exchequer. Declaratory remedies make up the third category of judicial remedies. 
Different from the other two categories, declaratory remedies usually involve a court's determination of how the law applies to particular facts without any command to the parties. Courts give declaratory remedies about many different kinds of questions, including whether a person has a legal status, who the owner of a property is, whether a statute has a particular meaning, or what the rights are under contract. While these are three basic categories of remedies in common law, there are also a handful of others, such as reformation and rescission, both dealing with contracts whose terms need to be rewritten or undone. Legal Remedies, Damages Compensatory Damages Compensatory damages are paid directly to the claimant to compensate for loss and injury when the defendant is proven to be liable for breach of duty or committing wrongful acts. In cases where the claimant has suffered ascertainable costs, it is easy to determine the amount of compensatory damages. In other cases where the liability results from the defendant failing to perform a service, it is necessary to calculate compensatory damages by inquiring how much it would cost for a third party to provide the same service. However, the court takes into account when the non-breaching party makes savings or profits because he or she is involuntarily relieved from the responsibilities specified in a broken contract. If the non-breaching party makes gains from alternative arrangements, compensatory damages are equivalent to his or her loss subtracted by the gains made from the substitution. Consequential damages Consequential damages, also known as special damages, are intended to compensate for the indirect consequences incurred by the defendant and are sanctioned on a case-by-case basis due to their specificity. Lost profits make up a common type of consequential damages in contract laws. When the party breaching a contract causes the plaintiff to lose profits, the money is recoverable if the plaintiff can prove its ascertainment and trace it to the wrongful conduct of the breaching party, which can be extremely difficult. Moreover, legal expenses including the ones generated by bringing a lawsuit against the breaching party to attain legal remedies do not count toward consequential damages and be charged from the defendant, unless stated in the contract otherwise. Punitive Damages Punitive damages are different from other types of damages because their main purpose is to punish the defendant and deter him or her and many others from engaging in similar kinds of unlawful conduct in the future. The maliciousness and willingness of the defendant to carry out certain wrongful acts are typically what compel the court to impose punitive damages. Since the intention of punitive damages is typically not to compensate the plaintiff, it is often that only a part of it would be awarded to the plaintiff at the discretion of judges and that they serve only as complements to compensatory damages. Incidental damages Incidental damages, closely associated with compensatory damages, are costs used to prevent further losses that result from the breach of contract on behalf of the non-breaching party. For example, a company breaches a hiring contract that it signed with a prospective employee. The expenditures that the employee spent searching for another job are an element of incidental damages. Nominal damages. The plaintiff is entitled to receive nominal damages in cases in which he or she suffers no actual harm or is unable to prove harm. Although the amount of nominal damages is typically small, the plaintiff can use the award of nominal damages as a justification to plead for punitive awards or appeal a violation of his or her rights that form the basis of the lawsuit common in cases involving constitutional rights. Liquidated damages Liquidated damages refer to a predetermined amount of money that must be paid by the breaching party, and they are fixed numbers agreed upon by both parties during the formation of a contract. Courts enforcing a liquidated damages provision would consider the reasonableness of its amount, specifically if it approximates the amount of actual damages caused, and the ascertain. 
Failing to meet this condition would turn liquidated damages into an unenforceable penalty that inequitably benefits the party receiving liquidated awards. Statutory Damages In certain cases, a statute dictates the amount of damages, rather than the calculation of the harm or loss endured by the plaintiff. The Fair Debt Collection Practices Act would charge up to $1,000 for every violation of its provision, which is an example of statutory damages. Treble damages is a type of statutory damages in which the amount of compensatory damages awarded to a plaintiff can be tripled given the warranty of a statute. Equitable Remedies There are three characteristics of equitable remedies that differ from damages. First, the jury is not used in cases involving equitable remedies. Second, in sanctioning equitable remedies, the court does not make decisions based on precedents but tends to rely on the justice that needs to be served. Third, equitable remedies are not monetary. Rather, they include actions, properties, etc., that the court orders the defendant to perform in order to bring both parties in a lawsuit back to the position in which they were prior to their contract. Injunction Injunction is a court order that coerces the defendant to take specific acts or refrains him or her from engaging in certain actions, i.e., breaching a contract. In the U.S., injunction is the most common type of equitable remedies, and failure to comply with an injunction can lead to results ranging from fines to imprisonment. Accounting for Profits Accounting for profits is an inquiry into the amount of gains that the defendant benefited from his or her wrongs. Accounting is more commonly practiced in cases against a fiduciary or breach of contract in which the ascertainment of the defendant's profits is important. Constructive Trust Constructive trust is enforced in situations where the possession of a property by the defendant unjustly enriches him or her, and therefore the court decides to grant the ownership of the property to the plaintiff. Equitable lien Equitable lien is applicable when the defendant used unjust funds obtained from the plaintiff to make improvements to his or her property. By granting the plaintiff a security interest in the property of the defendant, it guards the right of the plaintiff to have the funds returned from the defendant. Subrogation in a subrogation case, the property that belongs to the plaintiff from a legal standpoint is used by the defendant to repay the debt to a third party. Subrogation entitles the plaintiff to the rights as the third party against the defendant. Specific performance Specific performance refers to the court compelling the defendant to perform certain actions. This type of equitable remedy is limited in scope because in contract laws for example, issuing specific performance would require the property that gives rise to the lawsuit to be unique, or that it is more practical for the defendant to compensate the plaintiff by paying for compensatory damages. Reformation Reformation, or referred to as rectification, is when the court practices remedies by correcting the writings of a contract. Under two circumstances, reformation applies either when, one, the writing does not reflect the agreement made between the parties, or, two, one party signed the contract in the first place because he or she was manipulated by the fraud planned and executed by the other party. Equitable rescission Equitable rescission gives the innocent plaintiff the right to undo or rescind a contract when he or she entered the contract as a result of fraud, misrepresentation, etc., or when the contract has been breached by the other party. To restore the situation to what it was before the contract, both parties need to return what they have received from the exchange. Declaratory Remedies Declaratory remedies, or declaratory judgment, do not belong to the category of damages or equities. They are legal determinations made by the court to address ambiguity or disputes without sanctioning an action or practice against the parties involved. 
Declaratory remedies serve to affirm the validity of the claims and requests made by the plaintiff, accompanied by injunction in selective cases at the discretion of judges or juries. Declaratory remedies are a component of preventive adjudication because in cases that demand only declaration, no actual harm or loss has been incurred by the plaintiff. Trial-level remedies for pretrial publicity Pretrial publicity can lessen the effectiveness of jurors in ways such as presenting incriminating information or arousing blind emotions, which significantly influence the outcome of trials and damage their fairness. As technologies develop, the prevalence of mass media makes legal information more accessible and thus poses a larger threat to the process of adjudication. Trial-level remedies are designed for judges to mitigate the impact of pretrial publicity without infringing the freedom of expression for the press. Voir dire Voir dire, which means tell the truth in French, refers to a process in which attorneys and judges conduct interviews with potential jurors to discover their bias and rule out the ones who cannot be impartial. The selection procedure usually starts with a written questionnaire before questioning. In the process of questioning, both parties have the right to excuse potential jurors through challenges for cause. An attorney must convince the court with legitimate reasons to eliminate a potential juror. Another method to screen out a member from a pool of jurors is to use peremptory challenges, which cannot be rejected by the judge. However, attorneys can only use peremptory challenges for a limited number of times. Change of venue Change of venue is to relocate the trial to another area in the same state that has presumably received less exposure of information regarding the case. Change of venueman Instead of moving the location of the trial, the court can also import jurors from a distant community, where less coverage has been given to the case. Continuance Continuance is to postpone the trial on the grounds that the prejudice of jurors would reduce as they forget much information about the case from the media. The delay also results in the defendant spending additional time in jail or that it may attract more media attention and drive up the publicity of the case. Admonition Admonition utilizes the effectiveness of the instructions of the judge to the jurors and the jurors' obedience. By giving a panel of jurors instructions such as make verdicts solely based on the evidence presented in the court, the judge seeks to diminish the influence of mass media. Sequestration For high-profile cases, the jurors are isolated until the case is closed. They would be housed in together while their access to all forms of media and technologies is either screened or restrained. Case-by-case -case versus announced Remedies can be, and in American law usually are, determined case by case, and take into account many different facts including the amount of harm caused to the victim. Remedies can also be determined in advance for an entire class of cases. For example, there can be a fixed fine for all violations of a legal rule, regardless of how much harm was caused in a particular case. Application of legal remedy in different jurisdictions Monetary compensatory damages, along with injunction, are most commonly used in the United States. Similar to the U.S., the courts in the United Kingdom tend to award monetary compensatory damages in tort cases. However, punitive damages are not applicable in the legal systems of the U.K. and Japan or the contractual cases in Australia and occupy a limited but expanding scope in the People's Republic of China. In European states, the type of remedies, including the character and amount of damages, are determined on a case-by-case -case basis through factors such as the location where the illegal conduct caused damages. The enforcement of legal remedies can be difficult in international litigations as the law in one jurisdiction does not apply to another. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast.
The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. Mm-hmm.